This is Tasting Together. Toronto's News. Today's Talk. 640 Toronto. It's Saturday, it's 5 o'clock, and I'm Andre Pru. And I'm Maroki Tong, as you all know. And if not, if you're joining us for the first time, hopefully not, we are talking all the foods and drinks around the GTA. And tonight we're starting with budget eats. <laughs> budget eats. I think, yeah, we've got a whole half hour of budget eats coming up. I think it's something that's very front of mind for a lot of people, whether you're eating out. But we're going to take a look at what things are like around your home, right? Yeah, because Andre, so there was, I used to go to Bulk Barn a lot as a kid. It was something that my, I don't know, my mother took us out as kind of like a fun outing. I guess it was really exciting for us to run up and down the aisles of all the candy and just seeing them in these massive amounts. But then it kind of fell by the wayside. And then I started again. COVID kind of, you know, I know COVID's hard to talk about, but it kind of put a kibosh on the idea of going out and getting bulk food when no one wanted to be really sharing the same scoop. Recently, I've started looking to it again just to kind of find ways to maybe minimize some of my grocery bill costs. So I was just having this thought about whether buying food in bulk actually saves people money or are we just buying more? And it was something that I just saw some local news articles talking about it as well, just questioning, like, when we buy in bulk, do we actually save money or not? That's an interesting question. I actually love the picture that you painted about going to Bulk Barn because I'm not going to lie, as a grown-up, I, I do a lot of shopping at Bulk Barn. Um, I buy most of my spices from Bulk Barn because you don't want to keep spices in your house for generally more than a year. So I buy in smaller quantities generally as I'm cooking to make sure that I have fresh spices, especially when I'm cooking for guests. But after I go through the spice aisle, I definitely walk up and down the candy aisle and look for a little treat for myself. That is completely not healthy <laughs> that I eat in the car on the way home. But I mean, the other thing too is it's it's just, I like the whole conversation about whether or not you're actually saving money um, because I'm kind of going the other way where, like, where I buy small quantities and I use as I need, but I don't know if I'm actually saving money in the long run. But I mean, the good news is I don't have a lot of waste. Mm-hmm. Well, the the it's interesting that you bring that up, Andre, because I, I live in a small condo. Yes. I don't tend to buy in bulk either simply because there is no storage space whatsoever. Oh, totally. Right? But I I did grow up in the suburbs. I grew up quite close to farm country. And uh, my partner's parents is in the suburbs in the States as well. And I, you know, a lot of my friends who still live in Kitchener-Waterloo and are lucky enough to own a home, they regularly talk about that Costco run. Costco. When you go to Costco, yeah, you buy the massive amounts of paper towel. And I mean, those are non-perishables, but then they buy like the fruits, the vegetables, and you can buy them in massive quantities, milk, what say have you. I also grew up working at the farmer's market and going to the farmer's market. And, you know, during harvest season, you could buy a whole basket of apples for 15 bucks. And you think, and you know, they always tell you, oh yeah, you can just store it in your cold storage and it lasts indefinitely, at least so they say. So then you think, okay, well, now I have apples that go on and on. So, but one thing I've seen is that oftentimes a lot of it ends up spoiling. Yes. So you throw it out. Yes. Um, I have not ever managed to keep my bushel of apples staying as long as the farmers tell me. <laughs> or you end up eating far more than you think you would because you're like, I have so much of it. I can say I'm guilty of this when we make homemade hummus because it, we're always like, oh, we made so much hummus. Yeah, we made so much hummus. And then we just eat all the hummus. And then you make so yourself... suddenly it's like cost the thing. Yeah. No, no. I think that's a, a very, a very good point. And it's just like, it's, it's actually... It's actually one of the reasons why I got into the more religious meal planning was partly for health-wise. Like we've talked about on, on the show before that I was one of the lucky son of a guns that managed to lose a bit of weight during the pandemic, even though 
now that I'm back to entertaining like normal, some of it has started to come back. But like it was in the past when I maybe wasn't as financially comfortable as I was now, I was the person who would buy my toilet paper using the flyers and actually doing that math in my head of how much a roll of toilet paper costs. And that's the thing where I'm, I've always been a little bit frustrated about the bulk buying because I have friends who are religious Costco shoppers, but I've been in a Costco and I've done the math in my head about what it costs for a roll of toilet paper. And maybe there's convenience in buying 800 rolls of toilet paper in once, but you can get just as good a deal shopping at your local su- local local supermarket if you stick to shopping to the flyers. Like that stuff goes on sale pretty regularly. I don't know anybody who can frankly afford to pay full price for a roll of toilet paper. Mm-hmm. I guess I wonder if it's like it saves them the time and time is money. So it saves you from having to do multiple trips. But um, it's actually a good point that you bring up there, Andre, because when I finished my last bulk barn purchase, I actually thought to myself, how much money am I saving anyways? Because, you know, I'm looking at my giant um, container of coffee that I had filled to the brim. I basically had a massive like jumbo Folgers coffee bins from way back when yeah and then i you know ground yes and then i ground a whole bunch of organic coffee and went wow what a great deal i'm having and then you think oh i you know i only paid 15 16 bucks for this and i'm thinking well what what does that even translate to so i looked at you know the the weight like i looked at the i looked at the mass then i looked at the cost per mass and then i compared that against you know the bag of coffee that i'm buying at the grocery store and i would say that at most i'm saving like two bucks per few hundred grams so i actually think that's pretty quite good a nominal oh yeah, I, okay a okay nominal difference i guess that's the difference between you and me is i think two bucks for 100 grams is like that's that's pretty darn good as long as it's not taking a whole bunch of time to save that two dollars because that's the thing too is like while i am a flyer shopper i used to be so religious to it where i would go to three different grocery stores to make sure i hit all the flyers but then my day would be gone you know, I I, mm-hmm. I would have spent my whole day trying to save money. And it's just like, you know, what is my time worth? Have I just lost my entire Saturday? And I mean, I, I am someone who really does enjoy um, being in a grocery store, but it was getting it was getting out of hand. So like, even now, when my wife and I, we make our grocery list and we do our, our weekend shop, I'll do two grocery stores, but we won't drive across town. We have two grocery stores that are kind of in the same vicinity for each other. One where I buy my produce. And the other one where I buy my specialty ingredients that you can't get as nice of at the other store. I won't give any mm. particular any particular shout outs. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a third factor is it's just like two dollars for 100 grams. And my mind sounds pretty good as long as you're not driving all over the city like a crazy person to get the savings. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I mean, like, I guess it always comes down to the effort versus the dollar saved. And I more or less just walk in the ball bulk barn handed them my containers they weighed them i i went back and i just refilled them and i do give myself a little bit of a you know green pat a green star pat on the back for the environmental friendliness of not wasting packaging which i is something that i care a lot about oh i'm giving i'm giving you i'm giving you the pat on the back for that as well because i (laughs) i am a i'm a very regular bulk barn shopper but i i think for me it's it's just once again it comes to effort like i don't i don't want to have to like plan to wash my containers you know, take them to the store, then fill them, then bring them back home. And, you know, the plastic bags are small and I think those are recyclable as well. So just being, I am mindful of waste, but not as much as you. So gold star for you on that. <laughs> Thanks. I'll take it. I, I think the only other question I had uh, when it came to bulk, buying bulk is like, 
whether the quality of the food is the same. Because I know that was a fear of mine for a yes. while. And I, 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 I would say I had one very specific experience. So one thing I used to buy in bulk a lot is chia seeds. Okay. Um, because I was a health freak and I, you know, I wanted my little omega threes and my fibers. And I would buy massive bags because I worked at a health food store for a while. So I actually got a discount from buying it in bulk. Okay. I would think that there would be a lot, a few more kind of like rocky bits in the amounts I bought in bulk versus the ones I bought in the like pretty sealed, you know, named brand chia seeds. I, You know what? But I don't think that has ne- necessarily anything to do with buying in bulk. I think you get variation in brands and flavors. Like I, I buy the yellow label, no name stuff on the regular, but not all of it. Cause I do find there's certain products that are better in quality versus others. You know, like I do buy my, my pantry staples. Like I don't mind buying baking soda, baking powder in bulk or with the yellow label, no name. I haven't found any difference with that, but things like all purpose flour, I've had challenges buying the yellow label, no name stuff with that before. I find it just doesn't have the same flavor and texture as other brands that I enjoy working with, but I think we've already talked about that. I've got expensive tastes for the most part, so I, I'm definitely <laughs> sticking to spices where the qualities are definitely definitely the same, and it's also a little bit cheaper to um, to shop spices bulk that I've found as well. Yeah, it makes sense to me. Well, if you're like Andre's friends and have trouble meal planning, though, if you stick around after the break, we're also going to talk about some of the best cheap eats that exist around the GTA for the nights you don't want to cook. I am so looking forward to going through this list with you guys. This is Tasting Together on 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Andre Prue. Maroki Tong. <laughs> I know you're a bougie SOB when it comes to food sometimes, <laughs> but you did share a really great list to, to me recently that you were like, this list is amazing. I would eat all <laughs> these foods, even though they're the best cheap eats in Toronto. Yeah. I mean, we spent a lot of time on the show talking about the finer things, the, the top chefs, the master chefs, and, you know, all things <laughs> high-end white tablecloths. But uh, Foodism, so foodism.to, just came up with a list of 19 hot spots offering cheap eats in Toronto. And it was just like, like coming home when I saw that, where it's just like, I'm so happy that so many of these places, some of them are like places that I discovered when I first moved to Toronto in 2007, couldn't afford to eat anywhere else and was looking for something interesting to eat. It's just like, this list could have been written by me. It just made me feel a little validated that they've given <laughs> given me this microphone to talk about food in Toronto. <laughs> the funny thing is, is, like, I remember looking at some of them and being like, Oh, I went to so many of these spots before it was cool. And yeah. I also, in some ways, had some counters looking at some of these items that were listed on the on the article. So, Andre, I know you were super passionate about wanting to talk about this. So I want you to kick it off with some of the, you know, your favorite hot spots. And I'll come off of that because I have thoughts about a lot of these things. You know, I'm going to go in right with my with my favorite place because um, I'm going to give, I guess, a bit of a, a life hack to any of the younger people listening to the station that are maybe looking to impress uh, the ladies uh, or or the gentlemen. I mean, whatever, if you're looking to impress someone and look for a good place to eat out. So number 12 on this list was uh, Buck Chang Dong Soon Tofu, which is on Bloor right around the corner from Christie Station. And um, when I was young and couldn't afford anything else, um, that was my favorite spot to take someone on a first date because... 
Uh, it was definitely more interesting than and definitely more classy than going to McDonald's. But frankly, I think the food there is cheaper than even getting a meal at McDonald's. And it, it's also just something interesting, right? Like it's it's fairly authentic. I shouldn't say fairly. It's very authentic Korean food. It's always busy and it's delicious. And it was just one of those things where, you know, even if you're a young student, you can afford to pick up the bill. So you can make sure you make that great first impression on the date as well as sharing a little bit of culture. So that was my hack living in Toronto. I think I ate so much tofu there in my first like two, three years in uh, in Toronto. Um, I'm still not sick of it. I just I have a soft spot in my heart for that place. Mm, interesting. I know one of the other ones on your list was actually number one in the list called um, Juicy Dumpling. Oh, and Juicy I remember Dumpling. when I first saw it. Yeah, I ran into it in Chinatown and I grew up eating at Ding Tai Fung up in Markham, which yeah. is, you know, it's um, juicy dumplings. Like soup dumplings is what I I personally call Shanghainese dim sum because it's something that is very Shanghainese style. And I grew up going to Ding Tai Fung, like the, the chefs watch me grow up because when you go to that restaurant, they the chefs are right behind a, a glass window and you can see them making everything by hand. I'm pretty snobby when it comes to my dumplings. But I will say when you're paying essentially like three, four bucks for six dumplings, you're like, oh man, okay, this is a pretty good deal for that price. They're absolutely delicious. And the other one on it was Sanji Bao. And I think that one is number five yeah. um, on Young Street. I believe it's in North York, or at least that's the one I attend. Uh, that's the one I went to in North York. And that's just what I said. Like, it's fascinating to me that there is so many Asian spots on this on this list. Cont- you know, Rolsan, Mother's Dumplings, um, Golden Turtle, Vietnamese Pho Restaurant. And of course, the Bok Chang Don Sun Tofu. And sorry, all Koreans that were like absolutely probably butchering your language. I'm, I'm sorry. Chinese. Okay. <laughs> but it, it's like, I feel like, ha, huh, I was right all this time. Like here are all these places <laughs> I go and no one talked about finally being recognized by Buddhism. No, but I mean, it's also great too that a lot of these places where it's, when we think about what an affordable meal is, I, I think the default setting before you move to Toronto is often to roll into fast food. A lot of this food, I think, is is healthier for the most part than a lot of fast food, and frankly, a little bit cheaper. I don't cheaper. know about Aussie's Burgers, though. I'm looking at those pictures. <laughs> I know the other one that's on the list too. Like another place that I'm just in love with is PG Clucks as well, where it's you know it's hard to to it's hard to uh, go wrong with a fried chicken sandwich. Yeah. Well, in the interesting thing for me is the fact that they needed to name a really specific restaurant. And maybe that's just a condition of the article. But when you you know, when you brought up the Korean restaurant, I thought to myself, frankly, most spots in Koreatown yep. are delicious and, and don't cost a lot of money. Most pho places that doesn't need to be the golden turtle offer great value for dollar. And if we want to talk about dim sum, because, you know, roll sound was on there. Yes. Um, well, I... I, I mean, I grew up spending a lot of my time in Markham and Scarborough. And if you go to a dim sum place, usually before 11 a.m., you can get any, any dish for $1.99, usually, back in the day. I don't know how how many places do that now, given inflation and all that, but they usually still give a substantial discount before 11 a.m. That's good to know. I, you know what? I, I actually think that's why I generally associate dim sum with breakfast. And it's a, it's, yeah, I just... I like getting dim sum first thing in the morning. It's a little bit cheaper. My favorite haunt up in uh, North York is um, Perfect Chinese Restaurant. It's been a long time since I've been there, though. Uh, so I've heard mixed things about whether it's still as good as it was back in 2007. But, you know, that, that'll be something I have to check out soon to see hmm. uh, see how things are, are still rolling there. 
Yeah, I haven't I haven't had that one. You know, one thing I was surprised that didn't make the list, Andre, was ramen. Uh, you know what? I think the issue is a lot of the really, really good ramen places, like once you get your noodles, you get your, you know, your extra egg in it, you get, you know, the whole thing when you go through the check the boxes to get your bowl of ramen. It's definitely pricier than most places. I think it's how people have perceived ramen because, you know, in Japan, ramen isn't perceived quite like that. It's a, you know, it's very much like a grab and go on the counter food and it's a food staple. And it's, I, I remember when we were putting together this segment, I did have this thought to myself. I'm like, man, you know, when some foods get glorified to a level in North American culture, to the point where it doesn't become affordable cuisine anymore. And ramen was the one that came to mind yeah. because there is a lot of fanciful ramen out there. Does it lose its kind of, I don't want to use the word authenticity, but does it lose its, I don't know, like its meaning as that kind of dish. Now, I think, I know there's a lot of really well-known spots in downtown Toronto, like Kintan Ramen and and um, Ishan, Ramen Isen. But I there's a spot in North York, and I think they have other locations as well, called Agisen Ramen. And I remember their ramen was pretty fairly priced, and I bet you it still is. Interesting. I, you know, that is something worth checking out. Maybe it was an omission on the list. Um, one thing that I think was well-deserved to be on the list, so was number 17, uh, Udupi Palace. I'm sure I pronounced that wrong, but it's a place I've eaten at often. And I know we've talked about this on the show before, that uh, at one point in time, I was the dude who was likely making fun of vegans. But when you get a chance to truly experience great vegan and vegetarian cuisine, to especially get it on a budget, is um, you know, something that's transcendent. It's it's definitely worth the visit out to... Um, is it still Little India? I know it's one of those neighborhoods that's definitely in the process of uh, of gentrifying, but you know, back in the day... It was definitely like Garage a hot street east. Yes. Definitely a hot spot of like really great Indian restaurants. Huh. I've always thought that area was considered like old Chinatown or East Chinatown. So it's fascinating that oh, it's, it's actually little no, you India. Go past, as well. so you many go past little it. neighborhoods. You go past it. You go past ah. the Chinatown and you get to Little India. Wow, well, see, I discovered something new today. You know, before we wrap up this segment, Andre, do you know what I also think deserves an honorable mention for cheap eats in Toronto? No, what does? The hot dog cart. Oh the my god! Hot dog cart. That is okay. That is such a good call. That is, I think, the best call. And and it's the funny thing too, though, is like you think about things like the hot dog carts in New York City. I've had those. The ones in Toronto, infinitely better. You, you've got the steamy in Montreal. Toronto hot dogs better. I've even had hot dogs <laughs> at a few places in Chicago. Toronto hot dogs are better. And you're talking about less than five bucks. So. That is such a good call, Maroki. Yes, I, I feel like just the, the Toronto hot dog cart in the middle of the night is a staple. Or in the middle of the day, anywhere, guys. Just anywhere. Hot dogs anywhere, all hot times dog. of the day. Coming up after the break, we are joined by Jacob Martin, who is the winner of the Diageo World Class Canada Bartender of the Year from Bar Banan. And he's going to school us on what we need to know about cocktails. I need that help. So don't go away, folks. We'll be right back on Tasting Together 640 Toronto. You're listening to Tasting Together. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. It's Maroki Tong on Tasting Together, and it's around 5.30ish, I would say. Right, Andre? That's right. I'm Andre Pru, and we have been really looking forward to getting into the upcoming interview here. We're joined by a champion. And we seem to be 
collecting collecting winners on this show hope at the hopes that it'll make us more winner like i think <laughs> nothing but the best for tasting together and i would say there's probably not too many happy hours happening on a saturday but i still like to think about that pre-dinner cocktail and we're very fortunate to be joined by jacob martin from bar banan who just won the title of diageo world-class canada bartender of the year so hey jacob thanks for joining us hey guys nice to be had diving right into this here what exactly do you have to do to be crowned world-class bartender of the year? That, 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 that's a very good question. I, I mean, the, the the competition itself is kind of this three-alarm fire, which is married to kind of a marathon of just bartending tasks with frequent breaks for steak kind of in between various elements of the competition. But it's really a, um, a census of a very broad range of bartending skills. Um, some of them are slightly, um, resemble slightly more what you'd see at a cocktail bar, where you're presenting and producing drinks quickly, and you are uh, improvising bespoke cocktails for judges. For example, uh, there's a Johnny Walker challenge that was part of this year where you had to tell a story about Johnny Walker and then tell a story about yourself and illustrate that through two cocktails. And that is far more about kind of weaving a, a narrative. Obviously, you're still building and developing drinks that are being tasted and are being judged, but it's much more about kind of illustrating your process and showing attention to the brands that you're representing. Uh, so yeah, there, there, there's a lot. There's a lot of elements to it. Uh, for example, the, the initial process to get into the competition is just making a five-ingredient cocktail with no more than an ounce and a half of, cocktail, uh, of um, alcohol in it. However... Uh, it can have no more than five ingredients and none of those ingredients can be homemade. So that is something where like you really need to like look at like, okay, what's available in a grocery store or supermarket and how can I just have a minimal intervention thing? Whereas other cocktails in the competition might have, you know, 30 or 40 ingredients in them. Yeah, it's like it really highlights kind of the holistic work that a bartender needs to do from, you know, being able to serve customers and, uh, you know, kind of, as you said, improvise according to their needs. Yeah. or meeting certain restrictions based on maybe what's available at your bar um, to just even like a hospitality component. So what do you think you did that made you surpass your competitors so that you could be crowned Canada's bartender of the year? Well, I mean, I, I got to be honest with you, more or less from the very, very beginning of this process, I was quite confident that I wasn't doing very well. Um, oh. And I'm not sure if that's like more of like an internal confidence thing. But the thing is, is the majority of people that excel in world class um, specifically World Class Canada, which is, uh, from what I've heard, uniquely challenging, is normally it takes about five or six years to win. Certainly most wow. of the previous competitors uh, uh, have done it usually a minimum of four times and up to six or seven. And so the writing is kind of on the wall when you enter into it that you kind of need to do a bunch of years of practice. And it's more it's not necessarily about being a good or bad bartender, but understanding the formatting of a competition and also understanding like, time management in a competitive space wait so, so you so jacob, jacob i gotta jump in here just real quick because i think yeah. you've done what we call like burying the lead you said it takes like five six years before people win how many times have you been in the competition uh so i've i i have this is only my second cocktail competition in my life Ooh, oh my gosh first time, oh my god first time entering this this particular competition okay so you really are just like a like a rock star at this and you just uh, uh, I, don't, I don't know I, I mean i mean a lot of it came down to i think the thing that really kind of gave this a certain edge is i've had a very wonderful 
dialogue with experts in the city and outside of the city. And I worked under a lot of people that I would call masters at their craft. And, you know, restaurant work is funny. You'll work somewhere and you'll have these extremely intimate, very intense professional relationships with people. And then often you move to learn from someone else. And so there can always be like this ebb and flow of like this kind of love with this tension with these other people. But when I decided to do this competition, all of those former voices really coalesced around me and like gave me the criticism and the advice and the support and the attention to really dial in uh, my recipes. Um, I, I, a particular shout out, there's a girl named Jess Mealy who has competed uh, twice in this competition, done extremely well both times. And she like really gave me the, the kind of the coaching, actually. It's weird to refer to it as coaching, but it really is like someone who can help you distill your ideas. So you're not just sitting at your bar getting slowly drunk on like half-assed drinks that you're trying to produce on your own. Yeah. That sounds like me. Yeah. Like trying to make a drink in isolation is so tough. Yeah. So no, it's amazing. Um, okay. So you, you talked, you talked about like fundamental bartending skills. Like I, I know there's a lot of people who are listening to the radio and, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll count myself in this as well. I have a very deep bar, but it's all whiskey because I don't, need to mix it with anything i like putting whiskey sure. on ice and haven't done that what are some of the, the i guess just the basic skills if you could list them off that you're being judged on in this competition that you know just to paint the picture of what it is you're you're doing yeah absolutely so i mean a lot of it is i would divide it into really technical skills and then really presentation-based skills so technical skills are the actual like movements and mechanics of bartending which is its own particular kind of time honed skill set where you spend a lot of time handling tools, shaking drinks, stirring drinks, and tasting drinks to understand where balance and technique comes from and understand how to reliably produce hundreds of delicious cocktails, which can be as simple or complex as possible. You know, a great example is um, one of like the big insider cocktails in, in, in like bars around the world is a daiquiri. Because a daiquiri is just rum, lime, and, and, and simple syrup. If someone's ordering a daiquiri from me, it's very likely a fellow bartender or someone who judges cocktail competitions. Because, because it's so simple, they're looking to how dialed in your physical technique of shaking and measuring and your precision of that cocktail is. Mm-hmm. And I can say I shake up half my stuff in a mason jar. So that shows sure. my shaking. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <Right there. laughs> what, what is it? Well, like those gym protein shakers work really well too. With <laughs> <all of them>? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I know Andre has a really impressive bar cart, but I actually have an extremely minimal bar cart because I have just very much outed myself that I am a terrible mixologist sure. um, and, I, and I have a lot of bad cocktails to prove it. So what are some pointers that you could give if someone decided to maybe start their hand at cocktails at home? Are there some key liquors that they should have in their cabinet? If they're, you know, given that there's like a plethora of, you know, like, you know, sure. like um, accoutrements that you could have uh, from, you know, bitters to limes and lemons and all these things, it can get really overwhelming. So if someone Absolutely. wants to get started, what, what could they put in their cabinet and what could they put in their fridge or the shelves? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think the first really important thing, if you want to build your own home bar is not overdoing it on base spirits. And a base spirit is essentially the core ingredient in a cocktail. Usually the thing, the, 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 the alcoholic ingredient that has the largest volume in your drink. So that could be like a gin or a rum or a bourbon or a scotch, say. But the thing is, is because there is, we're really not wanting for choice in those categories. You really only want one bottle of each. And it should be a bit of a workhorse. Something that is not 
overly expensive or overly bespoke. I, I think there's this misconception, especially in spirits, that um, the, the, the price is the primary arbiter of quality. And mm. in some regards, that is true if you're drinking spirits neat. For example, if you want to buy, you know, a 22-year-old, I don't know, a Bowmore scotch or something like that, and you want something a little bit more reserved. But for the most part, a lot of the kind of institutional names in spirits categories, like a beef eater gin or a plantation rum or a Johnny Walker uh, uh, scotch or a Tanqueray, you know, like, like these, these names are usually enough to build really beautiful cocktails out of. And then what I like to focus on more are the modifying ingredients, because once you have those base spirits lined up where you really only need six bottles, the other ingredients that are going to take you the furthest and exploring different styles are liqueurs and amaros and uh, aperitive spirits, things like, you know, your Campari or Amaro Nonino or green chartreuse or a little bit of absinthe, those ingredients can take your cocktails so far in one direction or another. And then as it relates to the fresh ingredients, I try to just buy fresh ingredients or produce to really match the cocktail I'm making on that day. Jacob, if people are coming to check you out at Barbanen, do you have a signature cocktail or uh, what can people expect when they come to see you? Honestly, I think if you're coming into Barbanen, it's less about what I want to give you, what I want to give my guests and more about what they come imagining to drink. We love to make exciting, innovative, in the moment cocktails suited to people's palates. Obviously, I want to sell you on chartreuse and a bunch of rare, interesting, you know, cognacs and amaros. But it's more about what do the people want and let, allowing me to make that for you in that moment so we can share that drink together. I love that. That is like I'm truly gonna, the definition yeah. of great hospitality. Well, thank you so much, Jacob, for joining us. And you'll hopefully see me at Barbanan somewhere down in the future. I look forward to it. We look forward to having you. Coming up after the break, we are going to take a look at taxes and wine in Ontario. Definitely not the first or last time we're going to be talking about this topic, but there is something interesting happening in the news. So stick around. We'll be right back on Tasting Together 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. I'm Andre Peru, your Maroki Tong. We are joined by Global News' Danny Longo. How are you doing today, Danny? I am great. Hope you guys are doing well. We definitely are. It's been a doing great good. show so far. We did. Uh, we're yeah. going. We're going heavy on the beverages again. Uh, pun intended. Where we just had a great conversation with a mixologist, a winning bartender at Bar Banan. I'm looking forward to making my way down to that location and seeing what cocktails will be put together. That sounds wonderful. But. Mm-hmm. Danny, you brought an article to our attention a little while ago with regards to VQA in Ontario and how some winemakers are calling for Ontario to drop the extra restaurant fees for non-VQA bottles. So I don't know if you want to be the one to kind of uh, loop us in with what's going on to that regard. Yeah, I can just uh, give you a quick overview. So so a group of small Ontario wineries, they are, I guess they have an issue with the, the, the taxation, essentially, of... Uh, selling you know any non-vqa winery is allowed to sell their i guess you could call it an artisan winery to a restaurant however they're taxed very differently than a regular a winery would be taxed essentially and they're asking for the government to change that you know i guess just to give the listeners a bit of a, a refresher here um when you go to the lcbo and you grab a bottle of wine 
most regions actually have like a governing body that decides what standards you can use to make wine. And in Ontario, it's called the VQA. So when you see a bottle that says VQA, it'll say VQA either on the front. It normally has a little like square icon that says VQA on it. If a wine bottle has that VQA designation on it, what that means as a consumer and what that means for us is that 100% of the grapes that go into that bottle were grown in Ontario. What that means for the wine producers in this province is that they get a little bit of a break in the taxes. And if we take a look at the breakdown here, um, when a bottle of VQA wine is sold in Ontario, about 14% of that bottle goes towards taxes. But when you're selling a non-VQA wine, 42% go to taxes. So what this means for these non-VQA producers, there's a lot of reasons why a winery might not be VQA. Like there's some rules that have been in place for quite some time. One of them being you need to have five acres of land to be able to set up uh, a VQA winery. The other, I know we touched on it a little bit last week when we talked about hybrid grapes is there is a very specific set of rules and grapes that you're allowed to use in winemaking. But, you know, I, I think the VQA system overall is good to make sure that we have a set of rules and standards in Ontario for winemakers to follow to make sure that, you know, not anyone with a bathtub can ferment some grapes that they grew in their garden in the backyard and sell it out their front door. But I mean, I think it's something where like the VQA worked really hard to be a little bit more responsive to changes in the industry. But I think this does highlight a, a a problem here because there's people who are trying to set up viable businesses that are literally being like taxed taxed to death here yeah and it, it and when you were saying like 42 percent provincial versus 14 percent is a massive leap and the conversation we had last week about hybrid grapes just indicate that there's like there's still a huge gap between vqa getting caught up with the times given that there is such a large growth of wineries in more cold regions like up in Georgian Bay, Lake Huron, in Ottawa that are making wine with hybrid grapes and they aren't listed as VQA grapes. I mean, even Marquette, which is a pretty well-known one, only got its VQA status, what was it, like two, three years ago? I think it was in and around there. And it's just like, I know that VQA really kind of kicked things into high gear Um I guess like even going back to like 2010, like when I was starting to write about wine, because uh, you think about these agricultural bodies being fairly static and rules don't change very often. But one of the great things about the wine world is seeing what a winemaker can do and put their interpretation on it. And when you have tax implications attached to it, really, shouldn't we be letting the market decide what's good and what isn't? And if VQA is about making sure that the grapes are grown in Ontario and we have a strong wine, a strong grape growing industry in Ontario. Like as long as the grapes are grown in Ontario, if someone wants to muck around with the funkiest brand new hybrid from the University of Minnesota, why shouldn't we let them? Oh, I I can't answer it, but I think that's the argument that these winemakers have is that they say that all the grapes are being grown in Ontario. They're just not approved grapes, I guess, by the VQA. If you think about the five acreage rule too, that puts a lot of pressure on wineries, on smaller wineries or virtual wineries. There's a few established ones. I know, Andre, you brought one up when we were chatting. Domain Darius out in Prince Edward County. They're a very well-known winery. In fact, a lot of their product sells out quite early 
given just how good their wines are and the following that they have, but and I yet think, I a think, winery of that notoriety doesn't even get VQA status. Like that's kind of ridiculous in my opinion. Okay, but but that being said, though, we have to think about the the business plan and the marketing for some of these um, wineries as well, because this this goes specifically for sales to restaurants. If they sell the wines outside of their cellar door, because like I know the the people who run Domain Darius, they have no interest in selling to restaurants, and because they have that really great following, like you said, and they are right. Definitely... But that's good for them. But that's not exactly. that's not every winery, right? Exactly. Like Domain exactly. Darius is probably the norm, not the norm. Yeah, I think that's that's completely correct. Like Domain Darius is definitely not the norm; they are the exception. But you know, I, I just want to make sure that we're being accurate in, in what we're saying here. That it's just like. You know, the government isn't putting their boots on the throats of small wineries that are selling out their cellar doors. These people still have the ability to hopefully sell outside the cellar door. But, you know, that extra tax kicks in if they decide to sell to restaurants. And frankly, when you're a small business trying to get your footing, being able to sell 12 bottles to one restaurant is definitely a, a better way of getting your name out there than having to sell 12 bottles to 12 new customers, especially if you're trying to establish your brand, you know? Is, so is is like what this comes down to is this like does the VQA have to come to your property and like inspect your grapes or what exactly like how do they determine the grapes that are being grown or is it just are we going on the honor system here? No, there's a lot of paperwork that okay. is filled out. Okay. Yeah. So like there's no like, honor system. Yeah, grape, grape, so grape growers grape growers are registered with the with the government. They know what's planted. Uh, you get an idea of what crop yields are. And obviously, like, there's a tiny margin of error. But, like, if anyone was really fudging the numbers in a large way, you know, they get caught pretty damn quick. Uh, it's something a lot of people don't notice. If you go to wineries, you know, in that back part that is only active those few months of the year, all the wineries that process fruit have large scales. So the moment that that big plastic bin of grapes leaves uh, a vineyard, and goes to the winery, it goes on the scale, and that data is recorded, and that information goes to the VQA and to GGO. So Okay. So it's not a matter of them like like paying for people to come to their property. It's like the data is recorded and then they verify it post. Exactly. Uh, and then I mean you it goes yeah. all through the steps where like you know that X number of grapes makes X number of bottle of wines, and you can actually trace the with paperwork, painstaking paperwork, you can trace each step of production down the way to see how uh, like how many grapes end up in a bottle of wine. It's really kind of crazy. Well, this is pretty nerdy conversation that we've been having for the last 10 minutes. And I guess I, one thing I'd be curious to know, and if you're listening and you found this conversation semi-interesting, I would like to know, like you can message Andre at Andre Wine Review or myself at 9 Ounces Please on Instagram. What I want to know is like whether you guys think you know, do you look for the BQA sign when you're buying an Ontario made wine and whether it means something to you? Because I will say I've had a friend once say they're not super familiar with wines, but they just go, oh, I just buy anything with BQA on it because it just means it's good. Like that's how they that's their only barometer. They're like, oh, if I buy BQA. I just uh, I assume it's going to be good wine. I love so this question. It, I, I, yeah, I really do love this question to some people. I, I think there's a lot of people who still don't know what VQA means. And, and, and like I said, like there's other regions that have similar things. Like in France, it's AOC in Italy, it's DOC and DOCG. So yeah, I mean, hopefully people listening in their cars right now will maybe think twice before they grab a bottle to look for that VQA logo. And if you're taking a road trip as things are melting out and warming up in the spring, and you happen across a winery that maybe isn't located in Niagara, that doesn't have a VQA designation, perhaps up in Georgian Bay 
or up near the um, up near the Ottawa region, pop in, give those wineries a try. You will make Maroki's day mm. because they're largely making wines with hybrids, and we are looking for the best hybrid wine. It could be it could be being made already. It just won't be VQA. Let's change the norm and let's change the dynamics, folks. And if you are driving and you're wondering what that VQA stands for, Vintners Quality Alliance. Thanks, Danny. That was probably, yes, that was probably a very important thing to mention at some point. So there you go, guys. And I'm terrible at acronyms. So really appreciate that, Danny. (laughs) Well, that takes us to the end of Tasting Together for this Saturday. I know we're ending on a super nerdy note, but what's a Saturday (laughs) talk show without a little bit of education, right? I assure you, if you learned something from Tasting Together this week, it was completely by accident. But we hope you tune in next week at 5 o'clock on 640 Toronto.